Today's guest is a journalist and an award-winning author. He's written about the IRA, he's written about the Dutch Guard, and his most recent book is called First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA's Secret Mission to Avenge 9-11. I always believe that there's so many lessons to be learned from special forces and intelligence that can be applied within the business world and even within our, our daily lives. In this conversation, Toby and I explore the, some of those topics, both from the team itself, from the story itself, but also how he works as a journalist and how he works as an author and the lessons learned throughout these years. Please welcome Toby Harden. He's a friend. We've Many years ago, we rode our bicycles across Finland over to Sweden with a couple of other friends. He's a gentleman and a scholar. Please welcome Toby. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Hey, Toby. Thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be with you, George. So you've been in very dangerous situations. I'm curious, did you feel that you were in more danger embedded in the Middle East or when we were bicycling across Finland and Sweden? <laughs> Well, sometimes in those sort of lonely moments when I was at the back at the bottom of a big hill and there was these huge Scandinavian trucks heading towards me, it did feel a bit hairy. But, you know, probably Iraq and Afghanistan, I'd say. Yeah, I should say so. Although we did have our bike stolen in Stockholm, if you remember. So that was, that was a bit hairy. So I wanted to talk a bit about your book. I think I, I always think that there's so many lessons that the business world can learn from special forces. And just to be honest, just us as humans. And I want to learn a bit about your process. But I figured maybe one interesting place to start would be in researching your book, First Casualty, and writing it. Did it change anything about you in the way that you approach relationships or life or problems? Is, is there anything that like fundamentally changed as you went through that process? I'm sure it did. I mean, at the core of this story, there are sort of eight men from CIA Team Alpha who was paramilitaries, but also case officers, linguists, and there was a medic and there was a Green Beret. And then alongside them at the beginning was ODA 595, who were 12 Green Berets led by a captain of different specialisms, like weapons, intelligence, medics, comms. And so they were two teams of sort of incredible variety of very sort of high functioning people who were older than that's the average, um, certainly military person in Afghanistan and the CIA, some of them were in their late 40s, but sort of median was probably uh, late 30s. So there's hope for some of us old guys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but not quite for me now. But they were just sort of incredible people. And so, you know, there's stereotypes about the military and even about the CIA. But what really struck me and I think really affected me was how different people can be and, and what different skill sets they can have, yet they can still all point in the dire same direction. They can complement each other and work towards a, a common aim. And in fact, th that variety of people means that these sorts of teams that, that are going into very unfamiliar situations can adapt and improvise. So I think I, I learned a lot about that. I was really impressed by the diversity of background. You know, I think one of the guys, he had like an archaeology background and there was just a, such a mix. And, and I feel like sometimes in business, we can, we're looking for this finely tuned, you know, has the exact right background that we think, but you, you get such pleasant surprises by these people with philosophy backgrounds. And, you know, it, it could be anything really. It's that diversity of thought that they bring to the table that I think brings so much value. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I expect, so Mike Spann, who was the, you know, the first casualty in combat after 
uh, was, you know, a former Marine Corps officer who was very much, I feel like, in a way, the sort of the personification of America after 9-11. You know, with us or against us, black and white, let's, you know, go kill the bad guys. Let's take care of business. You know, he was a much more sort of nuanced person than that. And I think if, you know, if he, he was 32 and he was killed, if, if he'd lived, he probably would have developed into a very fine, very senior CIA officer, would have learned languages, would have become a sort of case officer, a traditional spy. But, um, you know, alongside Mike Spann, you know, David Tyson, who was with him when, with Mike Spann when he was killed on November 25th, 2001, and, and had to shoot himself out of an Al-Qaeda uprising inside a, a, a dusty fort. I mean, he spent four years living in Central Asia. He was a former academic. He was a polyglot, knew all these Central Asian languages. He was so close to going native at one point that he didn't own a pair of shoes. He had served in the military, but he was sort of the least militarily experienced of, of, of the eight of them. And yet when it came down to it, he was the guy who was faced with this sort of kill or be killed situation and and he survived he killed several dozen al-qaeda guys getting out of there so it also this also taught me a lot about you know somebody you know if you met david you know in the giant or food lion or whatever you know you wouldn't give him a second thought you know completely sort of unassuming guy and even if you even if you started talking to him he doesn't he doesn't come across as you know sort of navy seal elite warrior type yet the, the core his inner core was when the moment presented itself he stepped up and 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 he and he did what he had to do. So it's also you see the picture of the, the team alpha guys in in K two in Uzbekistan before they were flying and standing outside a, a Black Hawk helicopter. Um, and there are lots of jokes which they all enjoy about you know they look like dads on a fishing trip or you know you know middle aged guys going camping. And they were I mean they didn't have any didn't have body armor or helmets. They didn't have any military gear, so they got stuff from REI, you know, REI did some pretty good business in Northern Virginia in 2001, or just sort of camping stuff that they had in their in their closets. And, you know, so very, very unlike sort of, you know, what came to be later on in these wars with, you know, some sleeve tattoos and sunglasses and cool gear and, you know, very sort of slick equipment. They, they didn't have any of that, but, you know, they were successful and they got the job done. It's amazing what's possible when you just put together the right the right collection and mixture of people into a team. You know, one thing I'm really curious about, Toby, is your first book, Bandit Country, you were you were with the, the IRA. Second book is with the Welsh Guard. And now now this one with CIA and Special Forces. Like You seem to have a knack to get folks to trust you that are probably, if I made a top 10 list of people who don't earn trust easily uh, or don't don't grant trust easily, it, it would be those folks. <laughs> and like, I'm curious, you know, what is your process? How do you go about like getting into their world deeply so quickly and earning trust so quickly? Well, yeah, I mean, I thought about this a lot. It's not a trick. There's not a formula. And I think what happens is over time, over your entire life you and your sort of career, you know, you're at this point of, you're the sum of all these different experiences. I think... Having been in the military myself, so I was in the Royal Navy in the UK for nearly 10 years. So I joined in 85 and left in 94. And in, in the middle of that, I had a, a scholarship through college paid for by the Navy. I think the time I spent in Iraq and Afghanistan sort of as an embedded reporter and as a sort of unilateral reporter, the time I spent in Northern Ireland, I think, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm 56 years old now. You know, I've had quite a few experiences. I've had set, setbacks in my life that I've, I've, I've sort of overcome. And I feel that, you know, when you're meeting somebody for the first time, you sort of bring all that to the table. 
And then also I think what I've learned to do increasingly as I've got older is I've learned to, to listen. And yes, sort of ask questions, but to let it play out. Let people talk about what they want to talk about often. And a huge aid for me in this has been uh, AI transcription. So I use I use Otter and there are, there are other apps. But for the first two books, so the first book, Bandit Country, was 99. The second book was Dead Men Risen was 2011. And then this one was 2021. And so for the first two, I was working off, well, the first one I was working off physical C90 tapes. So you had to rewind and go... And the second one was, you know, USB audio files, you know, via USB. But both times I had to get them transcribed. And so I either do it myself, which was incredibly time consuming, or I'd subcontract it out. I'd pay people. I mean, in with Dead Men Risen, I had lots of sort of mostly, you know, older ladies in Britain doing it for me because they had to transcribe mainly British accents. And it was very time consuming. It cost me a lot of money. But now I can do with this, with First Casualty, I can do you know, four or five hour interviews. It can, we can go off on a tangent for an hour and it's fine because I just plug it in and Otter will do 80, 90% accurate uh, transcription. And so what I've also found is that these tangents, they may seem irrelevant and, and often they are, but that's fine. But they can, they can lead to really interesting places and really interesting material that I didn't expect. And I also think that it's just kind of good manners and polite and puts people at ease if you if you're not seen to be just trying to get something from them like a particular thing like you're fixated i just want to tell you about this you're a sniper i'm only interested in how many people you killed for instance and i've i've you know worked in sort of team situations with journalists i mean i I generally have tried to avoid them but you know sometimes i've been doing a joint interview and i find it unbelievable (laughs) the way some journalists can just interrupt people how rude they can be how they sort of cut people off how they can, you know, do the opposite of building a rapport. Can actually alienate people. Why is the bar set so low? It's, it's such a bummer that the bar is set so low. I love chasing the tangents. I, I find, and I should probably pause here for a second and say, I'm drawing many parallels between business world and, and special forces and what these folks do, but I'm by no way saying that we're anywhere related to what these heroes do, putting their lives on the line. I think there's just a lot of lessons to be learned. I feel the same way as a journalist. I mean, yeah, I've been in some dangerous situations and stuff, but but nothing compared to, you know, special forces or special operators or CIA paramilitaries over the last 20 years. Yeah. And, and one thing I was really, and because I do find myself in that situation. And when we're going in as consultants, you're fresh and you're talking to these folks, and you want to get them to open up to you. And sometimes if you just give enough space, I find that they'll just, they just start to, to say more and more and more until you eventually get, you know, after a while to the real, real deep human stuff and all the maybe pain that they've experienced in their, their job. And, and that's, that only happens if you meander for a while and you're com- comfortable meandering for a while. Yeah. I mean, as a journalist, when you're out in a place, there's a big, you get a lot of sort of kudos, I guess, or credit for for shared experience. Like you're there, you know, you put yourself in harm's way the same as the, as the soldier. And when you're in situation, I mean, I've certainly found this when you, when people are in a situation where they might die, then I mean, anybody might die the next day, but you know, it's, it's a real possible, strong possibility they might die in the, in the next day or the, or the next few weeks. You know, people talk about things they don't usually talk about. And also a bit like if you're sort of the chaplain or you're, or I don't know, some contractor. Yeah, as a journalist, you're an outsider. You're not in the chain of command. And so there is a sort of confessional aspect to it sometimes. 
where people will just sort of open up to you because you're sort of, you know, you're, you're slightly to one side. You've got a slightly different perspective. The safe space. I find that as well. The other trend that I saw in your book and in this story in general was this constant kind of bucking of the slow moving machine or the bucking of the bureaucracy. The story I was really drawn to was just that September 13th presentation where, you know, the the more conventional generals were saying, you know, that we're going to take several months to even come up with a plan, blah, 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 blah. But then, the you know, the who was it with the CTC was saying, oh, Kofa Black. Yeah, we have our plan. We're ready to go. We're ready to go right now. And that in itself just it seemed to give that confidence to say, OK, you guys, you guys run with this. Yeah, I was just curious your observations of that, because there's there's a balance between, you know, flying off half cocked versus already being prepared and being nimble and being able to move. And it's so relevant to what's happened over the past couple of years. I was curious your observations as you dug into those areas. Yeah, I mean, I vividly remember 9-11. I was in Washington, D.C., and I, I know you do as, as well. I mean, there was this sense of urgency that we can't just wait. You know, we have to get ahead of this because if we just wait, there'll be another attack. And we, you know, we didn't, there was a sense of, I remember on the night of November, of, of September the 11th, there were Humvees on the corner of Washington, D.C. streets. And it was like, is the next attack going to be tomorrow or is it going to be next week? So there was this sort of real urgency. And the CIA is a small organization with these small teams of people who would just get things done, will work it out on the ground. And Bush went for it. And it was incredibly successful in those early months. I mean, we forget now that the Taliban was toppled and most of Al-Qaeda was expelled from Afghanistan in a, in a matter of, you know, uh, of a couple of months. And there's incredible authority delegated. So, I mean, these, you know, J.R. Seeger, who was the so G, I mean, he was a GS-15 at the time, so kind of a colonel equivalent in military terms. He was um, Team Alpha Chief, but I mean, he was making sort of tactical decisions, but decisions with strategic consequences just on his own. Now it changed. I mean, it was very sort of flat, devolved structure at, at, at that time. And that was not the story of the rest of the war. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was fascinating to me how kind of liberated these guys felt because they were able to make their own decisions. And obviously, you know, sometimes they weren't the right decisions with, with hindsight or, you know, mistakes were made. But also there was an incredible amount done that couldn't have been done if they'd had to have had authority from sort of three levels higher than them. Yeah, you're at least moving in the general direction of, of doing something rather than just sitting around thinking about it. I also I was, I was amused how you wrote about how... Um, Rumsfeld was kind of lambasting his generals for not having any imagination or creativity as they were coming up with plans. And, and um, you know, I in my world, I always get frustrated anytime there's a new leap in technology. I, I find that there's so few people like they just keep taking the same thing that they had before and then applying it to the, the new technology rather than reimagining and kind of re-envisioning what what can be done. And, you know, I was curious, you know, what did you see in this team that, that gave them the ability to just constantly reimagine and, and think differently on their feet? I think a lot of experience from different realms. So I mentioned sort of academia. There was a marine Deputy Chief uh, Alex Hernandez was a sergeant major who'd been 20 plus year career in special forces, ended up on a special mission unit. J.R. Seeger had worked with the Mujahideen against the Russians in the 1980s. And so they all brought different things to the table. There was no, I mean, J.R. was definitely the chief and Alex was definitely the number two, but it was very much a sort of consensus model. I mean, 
there was some tension, not, not very much, and, and almost entirely sort of creative. The other thing was these people were used to, they were used to risk and they were comfortable with risk and they knew on some level that, you know, some or all of them might die and indeed Mike Span did. They were also ready to sort of operate individually or in in smaller units than eight. In fact, they very rarely operated as eight. They they usually they tended to operate in in threes or or even twos, sometimes. And so I think it was just that sort of flexibility. I mean, they also they knew the two of them, uh, uh, David and Jayan, knew the languages and, and knew the culture, but they were ready. To not look look for problems, but look for solutions, and not say we can't do this, we have to do it. We're going to find a way to do it. It's interesting because in in large organizations, consensus driven decisions has almost become a, a bad word because it can slow things to a halt. But that one point that you said in that team is they all have a shared level of risk that they're willing to take on. You know, I I, I think. A lot of times when you're trying to get consensus within a group, if you've got varying levels, especially very large varying levels of, of risk tolerance, that's when it, the consensus decision just grinds to a halt, right? Because you just can't get any agreement. Right. And I found that as a journalist. So so as a journalist, say unilaterally in Iraq, for instance, I, I would tend to, you tend to find one or two other people who you can sort of operate with. And they, so they, they, generally speaking, they tend to you don't want them to be competitors. So you don't want to be working for the Telegraph along with the Times of London, unless you, you really have to, because then you just, you produce the same thing. But you want you want people who who can sort of offset your tendencies. So I have a tendency, or I certainly had a little bit, to be, I wouldn't say reckless, but to sometimes dismiss things that were signs of danger. Some may call that reckless. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But I, I, I have a tendency to be like, you know what, it's probably going to be okay. And so I want somebody who was a little bit more cautious than me, but not significantly more. Because if, if it's significantly more, then you just, you know, you want to go do, st- I, I wanted to go do stuff. And I, but, but I, it was useful to me to have somebody who maybe would just say, hey, let's just take a, you know, I want to do it, but let's just take a step back and, and let's work it out. And then there's also just, you know, some people are good at technology. Some people are good at map reading. And so I would, I would sort of seek out people that I was in the same bracket as, but could maybe help me with some of the things that I knew were potential weaknesses. And presumably with, with some other people, they might have thought, well, you know, he's prepared to go do stuff and he's not completely reckless and maybe he'll push me to the edge of my comfort zone and that and that will be good. So that was very important. And I mean, I thought about this a lot with when people were getting uh, captured and beheaded by ISIS because I remember one particular sort of pairing and I thought that that's just a terrible pairing. Like those two guys were both incredibly reckless and they were encouraged, they were probably in a recklessness arms race when they were operating together. And that's what you really, really don't want. So yeah, but it's very important to sort of choose who you sort of operate with in those environments. Yeah, there's a gap between just balancing you out versus like either dragging you down or throwing you into the, the depths of hell, I suppose. Oh, I mean, I remember occasions when, I mean, there were huge teams, you know, group situations, which I generally didn't like, you know, I remember in Najaf in 2004, and, you know, there were too many people. There's, so there's too much of a range of sort of risk tolerance. And so literally, you know, I remember one occasion when sort of six people got into a vehicle and then one person in the middle 
suddenly just didn't feel comfortable with it and wasn't going to go. And we all had to get out and, and they got, they got out and stayed and it was just, it was just crazy. And I was just like, I just want to, at this point, I just want to walk and go and do it, you know? It's funny. I, I like, I always like to bring those stories back to just normal day-to-day stuff. I think it, anyone can relate if you've ever been maybe on vacation or hanging out with like more than eight people, maybe it's family or friends, you're in a ski house, you're, you're whatever. And you're just trying to decide where to go to dinner and you can't, <laughs> So at some point, you just have to say, I'm going. We're probably going to go to one of three places. If you guys want to come with me, that's great. If you don't, like, we're going to we're gonna go get dinner somewhere. Otherwise, it would never even happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just, yeah, very much day to day. Who's prepared to drive in the snow, you know, and who just wants to stay at home? You know, you see with COVID and, and risk tolerances and, and, and behaviors. So, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just a part of life. And so Team Alpha, it seemed like such a great recipe of, of a team. Do you have any insight on like, what was that, what was that formulation process of, of assembling that team? Well, so it was interesting. So, I mean, I think, so, you know, Kofa Black, who is the chairman of the counterterrorism center, who's a very sort of, you know, I interviewed him for the book and he, he lives pretty near to me. And so I see him occasionally, you know, kind of a storied career as a, as a spy in Africa, you know, chasing Carlos the Jackal. He was targeted by Bin Laden himself and very kind of theatrical. And he was the one who said to Bush, you know, when this is over, there are going to be flies walking across their eyeballs. So Kofa Black and then his deputy, Hank Crompton, who was the station chief in Canberra, who just arrived in Australia and got turned around after 9-11. And, and Hank Crompton sort of ran the, the war sort of day to day. They chose the teams. And so the early teams, I think they, look, they looked very carefully at the sort of balance of personality. So the first team to go in was Jawbreaker, which went into the Panchia Valley, I think September the 26th. That was sort of in friendly territory, Northern Alliance controlled territory. And they chose Gary Schroen, who was like a Lieutenant General equivalent in the CIA. Very senior guy, 60 years old, uh, was in the process of, of retiring. And they were sort of older, more experienced hands. With Team Alpha, I think they knew they were the f- their first team behind enemy lines. So military experience was very important. But, you know, I think they thought about it very carefully and... I mean, the balance between JR and Alex Hernandez, for instance. So JR was a few, a few years younger. He'd been an officer in 82nd Airborne, Ranger, qualified. Alex was the classic NCO. So, he, he you know, he's going to make, he's going to enforce the rules. He's going to make sure he's going to, his thing was like, let's not do stupid stuff. And then he modified to that. Let's not do very stupid stuff. But he was the one, security, safety, and but JR was the person with sort of the vision and the language and the, the, the knowledge of the tribes. But, you know, as every as you all know, in a sort of military context, the, the senior officer, the team leader will often defer or certainly listen, certainly listen to the, the greater experience and sort of military prowess of the senior NCO. I mean, it's just a classic relationship. And that's how the and that's how that was the sort of the heart of the team. And then you have sort of you know, David Tyson, who's a little bit of an outlier because 40 years old at the time, relatively new into the CIA, the sort of academic background, less military, but this very deep sort of bond with the Afghans. And I mean, I've heard, you know, this was the team that I focused on, but I've heard of so, sort of some tension and some some teams where the dynamics just didn't work later on, that they were sort of more thrown together. But with this team, it was sort of almost seamless. And I don't think that was by accident. I'm always blown away. You know, there's the classic advice, you, you know, you want to make sure you put the right people in the right seats. And I'm always blown away at 
how simple that sounds, but how incredibly difficult that is to actually make happen. Yeah, I mean, if you if you'd have the, I mean, if one of those eight had been just just a bad fit, the whole thing would have been very different. That's interesting. Yeah, just like one tiny little bit off, right? And it's effective a butterfly wing. You talked how they had a shared kind of alignment on the risk level, uh, risk tolerance. You talked about how you are kind of innately how some might, may or may not call reckless or were when you were younger. One thing that's common within these folks and yourself, quite honestly, is, is being comfortable or maybe not comfortable, but being able to live in a world of unexpectedness. And I'm curious, you know, with these folks and other folks that you've interviewed and just your observations of life, how much of that do you think is just in your, you know, born into you as your ability to be comfortable in unexpectedness versus being able to learn that skill or be able to adapt to it? Because I feel in ever-changing times, it's a skill set that more and more people need to learn. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's both. Certainly from my perspective, you know, I'm fourth generation military. I had a great grandfather that escaped, for, was captured in France in 1914, escaped from POW camp in Germany in 1916. I grew up with my grandfather from, you know, World War II showing me his medals and, and talking about, you know, his experiences and talking about his regiment's experiences at, at Rourke's Drift, which was part of the movie Zulu. And I also, I grew up in Manchester in the northwest of England, sort of grim industrial city, sort of like the Detroit of England or something. And so I always wanted to get out and it just felt oppressive and insular. And, and this is a very common kind of feeling, I think, when you talk to people who join the military. In fact, I was speaking to a guy yesterday who was in Vietnam, African-American living in segregated South Carolina. And he just talked to me about, you know, in you know 1957, sitting on his stoop, just dreaming of getting out of South Carolina, of getting out of the United States, going to Africa, going to Asia and and. And that's what he spent his life doing. And that's, so that was sort of something in him. I think it is also something you learn. And so I had, you know, twice when I was a kid, when I was nine, we moved from the south of England to the north of England. So my accent was very different. And I kept on getting called posh and I had a lot, lots of fights. Then I, then I moved from into sort of central Manchester when I was 14. And so both times I had this experience of going into a new school and taking a deep breath and thinking like, okay, so it's going to be a tough week or two. But I need to, it's going to be fine, you know, and I need to identify, you know, who's going to be an ally, who to avoid. And you, you just sort of work it out. And, you know, it was in some time, in some ways, it was a sort of daunting. Both of those things were daunting experiences. And I envy people who have lived in the same place throughout their life, throughout their childhood and, and no, you know, no kids from when they were four to when they were 18. And I sort of, I, I didn't have that. But it, you know, on another level, it definitely teach. It, I think it definitely taught me a lot of skills, adapting, and also it's kind of exhilarating as well. It's just like a completely new start. Like so, that image I had before, or you know, those kind of difficult relationships or whatever, those are in the past now. I can I can just sort of start again. And I found as a you know as a naval officer, when you join a new ship, you know, two hundred and fifty people, you maybe know two or three, and you eventually get to know all of them. And you have to sort of make your mark and, and and find your way. And, you know, people often sort of say, oh, it must be really different going from the military to journalism. And in some ways, yes, but in many ways not, you know, because as a journalist, you know, you're always going into unfamiliar situations. You're always got like, oh, who's this guy? You know, do can we trust him? Is he an idiot? You know, is he going to get us killed? Is he just going to be arrogant? 
and and you have to you have to find the people who are going to be helpful avoid the people who just don't want you to be there and they're just going to sort of stop you doing things and so you know i think you know my background and those childhood experiences sort of have helped me in going into unfamiliar situations you know as an adult the interesting common thread through all those is that 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 ability to embrace ever changing environments happens because of necessity and you know you know now we're in a time where technology is ever changing society is quickly evolving or devolving who, who, depending on who you talk to. And there's a lot of folks I think that are, you know, you know, in, in business and in life that are saying, Hey, I'm not used to things changing this quickly and I'm uncomfortable. And I guess part of me was hoping like, Hey, can these, can these people kind of get in the emotional gym and work out and prepare for that? Or is it just, you know, once they, once they face it, it's just going to become necessary at some point and they, that you, you'll find that it's not as hard as it is once you actually face the uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, it's both of those things. I mean, I think, you know, I have two kids who are now both teenagers and, you know, live in Northern Virginia and you want to push them. I, I want to sort of push them to take risks. The tough streets of Northern Virginia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, don't just go with the flow. Don't just believe something because that's what everyone is saying. And, you know, it's the world we live in now. It's sort of harder to do that. But at the same time, there's incredible opportunities to extend yourself. So... You know, I mean, I think there's such pressure now to, to sort of conform, to not say anything that may be sort of different or a risk to sort of keep within kind of ever narrowing sort of tracks of what's sort of acceptable opinion. And so I think the people who, while obviously being sensitive to societal change and, and, and people's comfort levels, and, you know, you have to sort of navigate all that. But the people who can, who can do that and can also say, you know what? I think everyone else is is maybe wrong on this. I'm going to try something different. Those people are going to be, you know, the leaders and success stories of the future. Bravery and imagination trumps all, all the time. So we talked a little bit about advice for others, advice for your children. One thing I always like to end on is in your life, what's the best advice you've ever received? Okay, so a couple of things. You know, my father died uh, just two years ago. And there's a couple of things. And, you know, we had a relationship that was ended up being very good but it certainly had its its ups and, and downs and I think we sort of in some ways we sort of clash sometimes because we were quite similar but he taught me you know a number of things when I was a kid and two two things sort of stand out one was if a thing's worth doing it's worth doing properly <laughs> you know and it used to really get on my nerves as you know I'd sort of bring the wood in or whatever and and I hadn't quite brought in enough wood or I hadn't stacked it properly, or you know, I just kind of, I just kind of thought, well, that's that's good enough. And so for him, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing it properly, and that has that has stuck with me. So go the extra mile, you know, talk to the extra person just to check that that's correct. You know, don't think, oh well, that you know, I tick the box by doing that interview. Now, what did you find out for it? from it can you could, could you go back did you really get to what that person that sort of essence of that person or everything that person has to offer so that and the other thing which has sort of been cited against me sometimes but it's he said to me rules are for the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools and so that's been thrown back at me sometimes it's like, oh you just don't believe in rules you know you just you know you're just a rebel and you just you know you you, you don't care about rules no it 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 didn't mean that. And we, my dad had, a, you know, explained it to me. And he's, and I remember we were in this little sort of village in Wales and 
And he said, if there was a sign, we're at the top of a hill. He said, if there was a sign there that said, no prams beyond this point. And then you saw a mother trip up and the pram with a baby in it started rolling down the hill. Would you look at the sign and say, oh, no prams beyond, uh, beyond that point. You know, they've, they've broken a rule. I'm not going to, I'm not going to run and catch that pram because then I'll be with a pram beyond the sign where prams aren't allowed. And he was like, no, of course you wouldn't. You'd run after the the pram. It doesn't mean you're dismissing the rule or you're ignoring it. You're taking it into account, but there are other circumstances that override it. And I, you know, I think it was a pretty, pretty good lesson. And I took it to heart, you know, as a journalist, often you're told, no, you can't do this. No. And if every time you're told, no, you don't do it, then you're never going to do anything. Or you're not allowed this visa because, you know, you have to apply two weeks in advance. Well, I want the visa anyway, or I'm, you know, I'm in a country where I can maybe give a gift of, you know, two Benjamins to the customs officer and he's going to let me across the border. So I'm breaking, I'm breaking a rule, you know, and, you know, I've obviously talking to CIA people who break rules all, all the time while also adhering to a kind of a, of a, of a, of an ethical code. So anyway, so that's, that's something that really stuck, stuck with me. Yes, be aware of rules and don't just recklessly ignore them, but adhere to them judiciously because there are, there are times when you need to break the rules. Those are great. I know I wish I could rewind time and not be annoyed with my parents when they gave me advice like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> me too. Well, Toby, First Casualty is a fantastic read. I, I encourage all out there to buy it and read it and recommend it. It's a great story for many reasons, human reasons, history reasons, you know, strategy, you name it. It's, it really covers all the bases. Thanks so much for being here, Toby. Well, thanks very much. And by the way, I think your bikes were stolen, but I still got my bike. Oh, you did. From that um, 2005 trip. <laughs> it's in the garage. Should get out and use it a little bit more. Nice. Great seeing you, Toby. All right. Likewise. Technology should serve vision, not set it. At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.